uh, is Richard not on today? Uh, Richard is not going to join us because he's tomorrow is when he starts his early shifts. Ah, so okay, recording in the evening is just a bit too late for him, especially with us starting, you know, like 45 minutes later than originally we planned. So, yeah. And that that's on me, too. Like uh, the evening, we're just not able to get oh. stuff going as quickly as I had hoped. So we all have all sorts of crazy stuff going on. Yay. <laughs> Welcome to <laughs> yeah. real life. I don't like it. It sucks. Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that finally has some games under its belt so we can keep going on. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. I know Richard this evening. Uh, his work schedule has, he's actually picking up more hours now, so that's good. But it, we're recording on kind of an odd night because we had to delay recording because we got some games in. So he will be with us in a future episode. He's still on the show, just wasn't able to make this session. And uh, today we're going to talk about actual ninth edition gameplay experience uh we've finally got a chance to get a couple of games uh both with uh me against kevin and me against dennis and we'll be talking about how those games went and our takeaways from them and kind of where we feel this is going uh but first as always news uh new releases and your listener mail and uh well there's been a lot of news in the last three weeks or so since we recorded um, uh, first off, uh, the app, which had just come out when we last recorded, and then during editing, the iOS version came out, and it wasn't much better, has had a number of updates made to it. My phone no longer reboots when I try to open it. That's a, that's a good start. <laughs> yeah, the, the, first, the first update took it from non-functional to just crash my phone. And then the third update, it's fine. It's fine now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the the app now, uh, so some of the changes they've made to it, uh, they have updated uh, power levels. Uh, data sheets actually show power levels now, and they've been updated, and we'll talk about updated power levels in a moment. Um, the core rules are now searchable. They've been removed <laughs> moved from a Google Drive to actually being in-app text, and... And the new the uh, faction FAQs are now in the app as well. And um, nope that that's that's about it. I mean, it still doesn't do it doesn't have much in the way of searchability yet. Uh, as far as like find like the rules are still organized in strange ways and strictly alphabetical, except when they're not. Um, the thing that it gives me hope with is. They are updating it, and they have made progress. So, like, it's clearly something that they're going to be updating on an ongoing basis. So that that gives me heart that, like, they'll keep improving it. I guess my only complaint is not much on them, but I guess on me-ish is I'm still using the free version, and right now there's not much for me to use here this other than to look at facts. Yeah, pretty much. It is still not a 
app of a lot of utility yet. Uh, and obviously there's no army building capability in it yet. Battlescribe is still the, the go-to tool for that, which by the way, make sure you always are using the most recently updated version of Battlescribe or else you'll be very confused as to why you can't get updates. And it does not mean that GW has maliciously had them, you know, issued a cease and desist and had them pull their updates off the, off the app. It just means it won't recognize them unless you have the newest version installed. This has actually been a thing that's come up. So well, I will admit, Rob, when I was building the list to play against you, um, yeah, I was only getting 8th edition until I um, reinstalled the new Battlescribe, then it found ninth edition. Yep. So yeah. just uh, always be updating. So Absolutely. But it is functional, and they've given everybody who had subscribed a month free to kind of make up for the less-than-stellar launch. Yeah. But, you know, again, like you said, Kevin, they are putting effort into keeping it updated. So I I think it would be premature to say it's only it, it's all up from here because there's definitely possibilities that, you know, an update will break this, that, or the other thing. But right. at, at least we know that they can still try to fix it afterwards. Yeah, and I'll... I'll be hopeful, but I'm going to wait till it actually has more stuff before I subscribe. I don't blame you. Yeah, it's not yet to the point where I'm going to subscribe either, but I'm hopeful that they can continue to build it up and get it to a point where it becomes kind of that, you know, what you take to a tournament. You take this, you know, at, do your list building and it's all of your codexes and all of your FAQs and you don't need to lug around a, a bunch of books. Yeah, take this and chapter approved and your golden would be ideal. Let's see. Um, then we also have, uh, as I mentioned, power levels have been officially updated. Uh, we've got a power rating update that I believe updates everything in in the game, uh, including uh, the like Forge World even has an entry, which is in the middle of the book under Forge, like under Forge World Imperium, Forge World Chaos, Forge World Xenos, instead of being at the end like it usually is, but. Hey, it's in alphabetical order like everything else is weirdly for no good reason. But it is there. Every power rating has been updated and this basically opens up the possibility that they will continue to update them as uh, well. And as codexes come out, this will become less necessary, but then they reserve the right to be able to update again in the future. So it's been a long time since actually I don't think we've ever had a, a mass power rating revision. Yeah, because some power levels would change when a codex would come out, but they they never went through and did like the big adjustment like they did with points. And I think more of the game uses power level now. Like there's more secondary missions and things like that 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 factor power level in. And I think they've simplified power level a little bit because it's it used to be roughly um, about fifty to a hundred or. 100 points to like 10 points or something like that um sorry i think it was like uh i think it was like 20 points to a power level yeah, that's kind of roughly where it level. yeah it and, about that way from what i was looking at at least on the it seems like it's a little closer to 10 to 1 because like if you're playing a 2000 point game it's typically a 200 pl pl level game so it, it well feels- okay so so that okay so um i think there's a, a misconception i think it's easy for people to miss is when it look when it says like Oh, for a like a game, uh, like an incursion level game, it'll say a uh, thousand points or fifty. It'll say like fifty to a hundred PL. 
what that the p the pl there is actually combined between the two armies oh okay so it's okay it's a bit can it's not worded as neatly as it as it could be because i did notice that some of the pls kind of adjusted down and and changed a little bit so yeah okay that's fair yeah that, that's the issue i found on mine was the pls the pls for eldar stuff kind of went down a little bit and the points went up and it made no sense but yeah <laughs> i don't know the algorithm they're using right yep but uh yeah it's still it's r- roughly 20 but obviously it doesn't work out exactly depending on what you're taking and also uh like dennis i know when you were building it and then you were having trouble hit it working on a list, which I think it turned out you didn't have updated f- battle scribe files. Oh, well, uh, I was trying to do it manually and I missed, you... mismathed. Oh, okay. But it's <laughs> like you were having trouble, like, because your lists, even even after you fixed your math, you were still coming in like 50 PL was around like 1,100 yeah, points. Well, yeah, and what I was noticing is it seemed like the PL was for the base Eldar squad with no upgrades. As soon as you start taking the upgrades, well, it's the same PL, but suddenly your points are much higher because you're taking upgrades. Right. And I'm thinking it should probably be the opposite because if you're doing PL, I mean, the point is to have the upgrades and not have to micromanage how much they are. Which I found interesting because like when I was putting together the sisters list and the death guard list and Tau list, like I was able to hit those that PL and point level pretty closely each time. Like I had, like I put together a couple of lists that were like, like either 49 PL and a thousand points or like 990 points and 50 PL. And I think I even threw together one that was like spot on 50 and a thousand. Right. <laughs> but those armies also like, as you point out, Eldar is very dependent on upgrades. Yeah. And I, there's a lot of armies that aren't so much. Or the power level has been kind of worked into the weapons costs. Right. And this could just be an Eldar problem. Which Craft Worlds is one of the older books, too, it's I believe. Older books, older model lines. Um... Well, yeah, there's many. So confirmed Eldar getting squatted. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that is not getting squatted, though, is uh, what are now referred to as Firstborn Marines, our, our classic... Not so tall Marines. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was so. Um, there's a couple other things we'll talk about after this that happened between that and this, but I think this is a a big enough thing. And we can just go ahead and drop it right now. So they announced that there's new. Uh, obviously, we know that the first two codexes are Space Marines and Necrons, mm-hmm. and a lot of units are getting reboxed in new Ninth Edition cladding, which looks really sharp. Um, like the, they show an example of the tactical Marine squad, uh, box and it, it's got the new ninth edition logo on it. And, you know, it's, it fits the, the way the IP is styled now. And yes, I said tactical squad because they are not ditching the old Marines, which they are now referring to as firstborn. And there's a lot of other changes that are going to be coming in the space Marine codex. And they also mentioned some from the Necron codex. So, for example, as we go through this list, heavy bolters will now be damaged too, which I think is fair considering the size of the bullet they're launching. Right. That's the size of like a uh, Coke can. So, yeah, that's fair. Uh, Flamers and heavy flamers are now going to be range 12. I think that's a little scary. Especially because you will be able to deep strike them in within nine inches of somebody. And then flame. 
Yes. It's what I was doing with my custodes. It creates some very interesting concepts with Overwatch as well, because now that you've got 12-inch flamers, now you've got more, you can always Overwatch with a flamer in a unit, so that's more strategy that goes into when you spend that command point for Overwatch, which I yes. like. Um, guns are now going to be, instead of a roll, two, roll twice, take the highest, it'll be just, if I believe if you're within half range, plus two damage. So it'll okay. become a, a three to eight damage rather than a one to six, which I think will a makes it more consistent and B makes it far more possible to pop a vehicle in one shot. Also, multi melters will now be heavy two instead of heavy one. Wow. Power swords are getting a plus one strength modifier. Space Marine power swords are all of them. They just say power swords. I will hope that goes on to like the howling Banshee power swords. <laughs> you would be very happy with that. I would. And then uh, Astartes grade chain swords will be AP minus one. So not quite as good as power swords, but better than they are now. Supercharged plasma will now only ever overheat on an unmodified one. So if somebody has penalties to be hit, they will no longer make your gun overheat more often. That's which, honestly how it should have always worked. Yeah. yeah. And then... Uh, the, the, they say these are just a few examples of what Marines are going to get as an update. And then they said, now we know lots of Marines use these weapons, whether supplied by the tech adepts of Mars or perhaps even acquired through less Imperium friendly means to turn on their former masters, which I think hints <laughs> at chaos and gene stealer cults getting access to these as well. In any case, when Codex Space Marine arrives in October, every other unit that utilizes the same war gear, regardless of faction, will get their weapon profiles upgraded accordingly. That sounds like a yes, Howling Banshees get plus one strength to me. Uh, now, granted, they do say that focuses on Imperium-made gear, so... Yeah. I, I, don't, I, I don't know if it will include any Xenos armies. But it does mean that, like, like the example they give is, like, Sisters Retributors will now get heavy two multi-meltas and damage two heavy bolters and 12-inch heavy flamers, which I am... I am so here for. Okay, well, maybe that means at least the Sisters of Silence weapons will go up plus one. Uh, very possible. That one I could definitely see. And they said, what about my lovely Xenos army? Well, don't we hear you cry. Well, don't worry. Your weaponry will get the same treatment. While most of their war gear may not be as ubiquitous as the Imperium's mass-produced arsenal, their weapons will be looked at, too, when, e when each of their codexes comes around. So, uh, like, for Eldar, you would have to wait for Craft Codex Craftworld to come back around. Maybe they can give Banshees plus two strength. That would be cool. But like uh, the the new Deathmark Synaptic Disintegrator has moved from rapid fire one twenty four inches to uh, heavy one thirty six inches. Also, it's gone from strength four AP zero to strength five AP two. So it is significantly better. Uh, Trier Praetorian uh, staff has gone f from uh, one damage to two damage and. Apparently, they're going to get extra attacks. The unit will. And then, the, what's more, both these units will get a suitably chunky stat line boost to match their powerful new weaponry. Oh, and speaking of stat boosts, Space Marines will get some of those in their codex. In fact, all fully-fledged Space Marines, which I'm reading as anything that is not a scout, uh, will be getting two wounds. It won't just be Primaris on two wounds any anymore. All of a sudden, a lot of units will have a feel... What may That may have felt a bit left behind will become very durable and appealing. Okay, that sounds like it's throwing my idea of the old versus new Space Marine clash out the window. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really think so. And they also talk about how uh, 
like Firstborn Terminators will be three wounds instead of two, like they are now. As far as future codexes for other genetically engineered transhuman warriors, both of the shiny gray and spiky variety, the same will apply to them. So when we get a new codex cast Space Marines, you'll get two wound cult marines you'll get two like two wound berserkers two wound noise marines two wound standard chaos marines uh when we get death guard we'll get two wound plague marines we'll get two wound uh, rubric marines for thousand suns all of these updates will come with a suitable points adjustment the aforementioned tactical marine will clock in at 18 points for his extra wound 20 percent more than he is today and it means space marine forces will be compact elite durable and utterly deadly just as they should be yeah i really like this change like i have always thought that one of the problems with the game, and this is, we've said this a little bit about eighth edition when like Terminators went to two wounds or, you know, and things like that. There's not enough differentiation in the game between like Space Marine and a Guardsman. Like, so that second wound now makes Terminators, pl- uh, Space Marines play differently than a regular Guardsman or an Eldar. So it's like, I like that. I like these changes. I like the extra range and the extra shooting. Only thing I don't understand is. Why wait and do this now? You just had a new edition. You just put out an FAQ. You just updated all the points and all the power levels. Then you announce this change. It just, the timing seems weird. Yeah, I I think they they probably wanted to kind of establish the baseline of the game with the launch and maybe not hit everything at once. Like, because at that point, not only would you have to release the core rules and everything, you'd have to release basically like a mini index that would have all the, like, it, cause this goes beyond errata. Like this would back to index 40 K for ninth edition, but only for like a month or two. You could have released like a PDF index or released in the chapter approved the updated stat lines I don't. There, there's ways they could have done it. It just it strikes me as odd. I'm not saying there's anything malicious behind it. Feels the timing feels super weird. Uh, I, I would I'll allow that, but at the same time, they are. I think it's also because they want to get people hyped for the new codexes because you're tell asking people that well, you're going to have to buy your codex again. And if the argument has been well, eighth edition, you know, ninth edition and eighth edition are completely compatible, other than like the changes to like uh, blast and stuff like that, it's like no, this is the reason why we're wanting to give you like the you know, like what well, you you'll want to buy a new codex because we're giving every army a set of upgrades to make the game feel again closer to the tabletop, where like you said, a marine no longer feels like just a slightly upscaled guardsman. So, like, I get why they're doing it and why they I, – I think I understand why they wanted, didn't want to do it just, like, when they dropped the edition on us. I think maybe they were concerned that it was just – it would have been too much at once or maybe they did want to just kind of pace it out. What sucks is that there's going – you know, yes, all the weapons – all, like, the Imperium weapons are getting updated and hopefully – they would do things like update like all power swords across the board, regardless of faction. But it does suck that there are going to be armies that are going to be left in the lurch until they get their new codexes. Like Tau? Oh, Tau. I mean, Tau, Eldar. Well, hey, even the, uh, yes, the Death Guard are going to get access to these new, you know, to like, oh, so they'll have better, you know, plasma guns and better, well, they don't really use multi-melters on anything, but they'll have, they don't really use heavy bolters or anything, but... But like, yeah, hey, Space Marines, they do get access to all that. So that's great. 
but they're not going to get the upscaled wound count until they get their codex. So there's going to be this weird window in the middle where they won't, you'll know they're going to get better, but they're not there yet. I guess that's kind of what I mean by surprised with the timing of it. Cause me, the, the time to make these changes was the beginning of the edition so that you can put out an FAQ or a, you know, a, a free index or include a pamphlet index in chapter approved or in the rule book with like, here are the updated stat lines for the units that changed. Because what you've done is you've, you've rebalanced the game for ninth. And that was their big selling point. We've changed all the point costs. We've, you know, we've done all this stuff. We've changed the core rules of the game to balance it. And then you're immediately throwing it out of balance because some space Marines are going to have this chaos. Won't have this yet. Cray Knights won't have it yet. Like it, it feels like we're going to be another six or seven, you know, six months year before we get back to a point where the game is back to balance. And in a game where, balance has been a consistent issue like it i don't know it just feels like they missed their opportunity to to balance the game at once i I don't disagree with you and maybe this is something maybe they will yeah if if i will say gw is better at reading the room now than they had than they used to be so by releasing this now maybe they're trying to gauge response and i'm sure they're seeing the pushback from there's because i've seen a lot of xenos players saying, yeah, but this doesn't do anything for us in the meantime. Mm-hmm. So while I don't know if they would necessarily drop like a lot of the weapons updates ahead of time, they could maybe do things. And again, this won't necessarily help Xenos players, but like Chaos players, for example, there's no reason why the, you couldn't just do a mass errata on them to say, yeah, like on these pages, boom, 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 on these data sheets, change wounds to two. That That's a pretty simple change. And because they've got the stats in the app, they and because this would be an errata rather than a new codex that would have to be unlocked, and they already said that like they're going to update the stats for all the weapons in the app. So like when you search an existing codex, it'll have the... Uh, like So if you look for Chaos Space Marines, once the regular Space Marine codex comes out, all the heavy bolters are going to be too to damage why not update all those data sheets again it it still doesn't fix the problem for any everyone there's still a good third of the armies out there that are just going to be left in the lurch so it is unfortunate and as somebody who plays at least one of those armies that will be left in the lurch it does suck especially because we're in a very weird spot that particular faction is in a weird spot right now but yeah so no it is weird. I'm not going to I'm not going to disagree with you. I think I kind of understand their logic and I can understand why they kind of wanted to get away from the index concept. But there they yeah, they, there's other ways they could there's things they could do and things they could yet do because this hasn't hit yet. These codexes aren't going to hit until sometime in October. They've got a month or so. They've got like a month and a half almost 2 months since it will have been almost two months since this has been posted to come up with some interim solution that might be able to adjust things. So we'll see what happens. At least they're giving people a heads up and not just suddenly like the week before the codex. It's, Oh, by the way, the entire army is going to be outbalanced. No, they're, they're much better at doing at kind of building hype and, and letting the player base know what's going on. So I, I'm not saying this handled, 
poorly. I just I find it very curious because I don't know. It just seems to me like a change like that fits better at the beginning of the edition when you're also doing all of these other changes because what they effectively did for Space Marines was released a codex at the end of eighth edition. They did the December uh, chapter approved points updates and they changed editions, the summer points update released an FAQ and then announced that everything's changing again. I, it just seems like yeah. a lot of duplicated work. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're absolutely not wrong, but I, I would hope that there's a strategy in, t- in it. And I think some of that may just be trying to rock the boat incrementally rather than upend the whole thing at once. So we'll see how successful they are at that. Yeah. And from what we've seen, I mean, it didn't appear on the outside that ninth edition was that much of a change from eighth edition, but from having played games, it does feel a lot different. So I think maybe piecemealing more changes will give people time to adjust to the new changes that are currently out there. That's true. That's true. Speaking of, of ways to, kind of get people acclimated uh even though indominus is gone there as we were wondering if this was going to happen there are new starter sets that are now available they they went up for pre-order last week and or actually technically two weekends ago and so they are they are available for order now uh so just like before there's a small edition a medium-sized edition and a large edition um the small edition is gets you a paper playing mat, a box that can be double that can double as a piece of terrain, a couple of clear range rulers, basically a recruit manual which is just the core rules and the stats you need, and then like the Primaris Lieutenant, five assault intercessors, a Royal Warden, ten Necron warriors, and three scarabs. It's it's basically the equivalent of the tiny little starter box that they had last edition. Mm-hmm. Then there's what they call the elite edition, which has more models. It's got the same terrain. It's got the same, it's got a slightly larger manual because it has more units in it because it also includes the outrider bikes and the Scorpec destroyers and one plasma site. Otherwise it is very similar, just more models. And then finally there's the command edition, which is and also that previous edition is about $100 for $165 there's the command edition which gets you a fold out gaming board like like a kill kill team kill zone board plus a bunch of push fit terrain for it and then the same models as the previous edition as well and a full A4 size so it's like a it's like the small size or it's a slightly smaller size um that a softbound uh, core rule book. That's like 184 pages. And one of the things too was uh, because one of our friends who owns a game store here had a copy of, I believe it was the command edition, but it may have been elite may also have this, but it also had a booklet that was uh, a kind of a how to play. And it literally like walked you through scenarios of like, okay, put this model together and this model together. Here is a scenario you can play with these models. These five models. Here's a scenario you can play with these five models against these. And it was really cool to like, see that step-by-step like, okay, this is, you know, when it's two, when it's the small unit, this is how melee works. And this is the initiative for melee. Uh, And then, okay, here, when you have this, you have more, 
more space. So like, let's introduce shooting or let's introduce cover. And like, it, it was kind of a really interesting way to like build up the rules through playing the game as well as it also said like where to go after that. And it showed up the full data sheets because it didn't have the points, but it had the power levels for the ATV, the, uh, like the firestorm battery, I think firestorm battery, and then the canoptic uh, doom cannon, and like one other, and the the heavy destroyer, I think. Mm-hmm. So like it was kind of neat because it actually like guided you through like putting the pieces together, like build Dean's first, play this scenario, build Dean's, play this scenario, and it kind of walked you through the game in a very naturalistic way, which I I was really impressed by. No, it's it's a. Uh... And that's actually how some of the older starter like starter sets were, where they had those scenarios that kind of like ramped up the rules, you know, mission by mission until by the end you're playing a full game. Um, I will say the terrain for the uh, command edition looks pretty slick. And the fact that it's all push fit is also very impressive because it's, it's consistent with the other like ruins and Mechanicus terrain that they've put out. And having played with the new terrain rules, even though there's like only two ruins there, it will actually have an effect on the game, which is nice. Um, and they've also released what they call basically like a starting battle, like a battlefield upgrade set, which is just the terrain and the fold out map from the command edition. So if you don't need the models, because like uh, you don't play that, like if you don't play Marines or Necrons, but you want the board and the terrain, you can buy that separately, which I have one on order. It has not arrived yet, uh, probably because the mail is really screwed up right now. But, but uh, so yeah, there's like a bunch of different starting sets that they have released and uh, other accoutrement to go with it or to expand upon it. Uh, one thing I do think is a little weird, like for the command set, it. And technically for the elite set as well, is that you are playing on a kill team sized board rather than a like the 44 by 30, which is the normal minimum sized even for like a 500 point game. Mm-hmm. But I guess these games are probably even smaller than that. So it's enough to start with. Yeah, I haven't gone through and pointed out what the uh, models in the, you know, that come in the box point out to but i guarantee they don't point out to 500 points so probably not no and let's see anything else like there's the and in fact there's like a an article on their site talk just showing off the new terrain and i do also like that the fold-out map is double-sided so like there's a mars side and just a generic gray battlefield side <clears throat> oh and uh we have by the time you hear this it will probably it will likely have already aired but uh, this weekend they have another Warhammer Online uh, Twitch reveal. Yes. So there's going to be a new things released or revealed for all the different lines, which means we'll probably get to see some more of the new Space Marine and Necron stuff that's coming. Also, possibly some of the other models that they've been teasing. So maybe we'll know what codexes are going to follow Space Marines and Necrons. Because that's really good. Like, are we going to see a ninth edition style rapid release schedule of codexes to get everything up? Part of me hopes we do, and part of me hopes we don't. I don't yeah. think my wallet can survive it. If right, that's the part of me that doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of hope they slow it down a little bit and 
let the game because because the other th- part of it is that like very few people are actually getting to play right now because we're still in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. So like that's what things are like I haven't you know we have it's been very difficult to get a feel for ninth edition. So I hope they don't start tweaking and releasing things in that regard like until people actually get a chance to play more games. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll see what comes of all of, all of these new changes, but uh yeah, um they're definitely have not put any brakes on the ninth edition release train. It is it is going full speed ahead and dragging everyone along for the ride. Hopefully they're under con- it's under control. Hopefully it's not yeah. flying off a cliff. <laughs> well, there's only one way we'll find out and that's to you know just kind of see where it takes us. But again, this does seem like they've released, uh, you know, they had faction FAQs that came out uh, around the time the the edition launched. And now they've released FAQs to the FAQs, especially for Mm -hmm. like the core rules. Like they changed, they changed up a little bit how Lookout Sir works so that characters can be hidden by vehicles, but not by vehicles that are also characters. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> but I, if, for re, I mean, they didn't want, like, they said, like, two uh, Raven, like, uh, or two Ravenwing Talon ma- Masters guarding each other. They didn't want to ha- yeah. allow that. But the side effect of how they had the rules uh, at the time was that, like, if a vehicle had less than nine wounds, then you couldn't hide behind it at all, which meant like a lot of like Harlequin and Drukari characters were screwed because yeah. they'd pop out of a transport and then just be sh- shootable. Mm-hmm. So now it's like, so you can't target a unit contains any character models with a wounds characteristic of nine or less with a ranged weapon while the character is within three inches of any of the following, a friendly unit that contains uh one or more vehicle or monster models with a wounds characteristic of 10 or more, a friendly non-character unit that contains one or more vehicle or monster models, or a friendly non-character unit that contains three or more models. So it can be a character if it's a huge character. That that tracks. Yeah. So they like they they are quickly observing what people are are like because there are ha- there are places in the world and there are people getting in Obviously, we got in games, but there have been people getting in games of the edition and figuring out, like, what what do we need to address? What questions are people having? What could we could we tune a little bit tighter? And also, there have been a few errors that they've noticed, like on one of the missions, the uh, setup, it was like table quarters with a cutaway. And they, it's like, it was a nine inch, the cutaway is nine inches from the center. And then the objectives are supposed to be, were marked on the map as 12 inches away from the, that ring, which put them at the edge of the battlefield on a 44 by 30 map, which is really right. bad because this is for a thousand point mission. And they're like, no, 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 it's supposed to be 12 inches from the center. Just make that a three inch extra, not a 12 inch extra. <laughs> so just little errors like that, that they've caught. They've also added a whole bunch of new, uh, rare rules interactions like ignoring wounds versus rules that prevent models from ignoring wounds or models that can like models that have rules that allow them to move through models as if they're not there. Um, you know, they've been trying to catch those like regular rules interactions that are like unit specific, but happen more than once like across various codexes. So they're trying to keep this 
all kind of consistently together, which is nice, which also means that when we get the new version of the Grand Tournament packet for 2021, hopefully it will have these new rare rules printed in it as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the game is that they are treating this very much like this is uh, even more so than the last edition, treating it like it is a, a living rule set that they want to keep balanced and tuned and address issues as they come up. So we'll see if they can keep it updated as well as they're, you know, like it's kind of like the app. Let's see it. Let, you know, so far they've shown a dedication to keeping it updated and working. Let's see if it, if they can follow through on it all the way to the end. And that is the, and that is the end of our news and new releases. Uh, so we will transition over to listener mail. As always, these letters are written by you, the listeners, and we'll tell you how you can get your letter read on the show at the end of the segment. Uh, first one is a follow-up from Dale Kimball. Dale wrote to us uh, last episode and asked what kind of army he should make. And we talked about like Star War orcs or Gundam orcs or um like a number of possibilities. And so Dale wrote back to us and decided on what he was going to do. He says, I wanted to write in and let you know, I listened to the episode with my question. Thanks so much for the ideas. Uh, confession time. I made my decision after emailing you, but before you're recording, I decided on Grotdoms, Grot Gundams, running them as Salamander Marine Dreadnoughts. Brayar Thashmantle, three mortars with double las cannons and three leviathans with storm cannons and siege drills, mostly because they'll look cool. This leaves me with a couple of points for something else. Haven't decided on what yet. I put in some links so you can see the base models I'll be building from. Thanks for being so supportive and taking such a silly question seriously. P.S. Star Warks is next on the table after I finish this. <laughs> oh my god. He is using like Sergeant Frog and other... Um, yeah, he's using Gundam and like various anime toys as the basis yeah. for his uh his Grotgums. So now, they have the perfect aesthetic for like a Grot Gundam army. Like, no, that's that's gonna work out perfect. Yeah. So. <laughs> it will be it will be silly and creative, and I wish Dale the best of luck in in realizing his his vision for this. And, uh, I wanna see pictures when it's completed. <laughs> I, yeah, so so Dale, I, you know, when you get these done, you have to send us pictures. We definitely want to see them. Uh, next up is from Maverick Bishop. Maverick writes, Hey gang, Maverick from Ag World, Kansas again. I haven't messaged you since late 7th. Uh, with a new addition comes a need for new tactics. My main army is a Craft World Ibrasil force. Among other things, Ibrasil is known for seeking lost treasures from the Crone Worlds, making a bargain with the Moraheg, the Crone Goddess, and being very big on the use of Howling Banshees. That last point has me wanting to include at least one squad of Banshees in most of my games and to feature them heavily in the Crusade League my local group will be starting soon. Unfortunately, popular consensus seems to be that Banshees are tough to work with at the moment. So, two questions. One, any thoughts on how to get the most out of Banshees in 9th edition? I don't need them to win tournaments, but it would be nice to feel like I'm not actively hindering myself by including them. In 8th, I could use them to shut down the shooting of Imperial vehicles or turn off Overwatch. Now, turning off Overwatch isn't as big of a deal, and tanks I charge can just shoot the not-especially-cheap Aspect Warriors to pieces. Psychic powers can make them a little harder, but not that much harder. And I'm not sure they really become more efficient by the time you factor in the cost of those psychers. Any thoughts? I'm still struggling to figure out what their job is in ninth. 
Uh, two, any thoughts on how to bring out an army's flavor when their iconic units rules are going through a rough patch? Many factions have specific units that they're known for fielding. Inevitably, some of these units are going to have an addition where they're just not as, as efficient as other options. Other than simply committing to use to using quote-unquote bad units, how do you make your army feel like it belongs to its faction? Feel free to use Ibrasil as an example. Well, I'll say first off, um, I'm assuming you, you've picked up Blood of, or the, not Blood of the Phoenix, Phoenix Rising, um, because the way you described your craft world, there's two craft world traits in here that just sound perfect for it, being um, the craft world trait of Children of Moraheg and the Hunters of Ancient Relics. I don't know how competitive they are, but they sound like they fit the playstyle of your army that you're you're wanting to do. So, if you haven't picked up the book, um, I recommend it. If you have, I'm assuming you're probably already using those traits. Um, as for the banshees, um, Overwatch is still a thing, but I think the more important part of banshees is one: smaller games they're going to shine. Because in the smaller game, it'll be on a smaller board. You'll be able to get charges in quickly. And the biggest thing about the new rules that Banshees play into is if you lock somebody up in combat, they have to, if they want to fall back, they can't just shoot you. Other people can shoot you, but if you pick prime targets that you don't want shooting, hit, have the Banshees hit them, they can't overwatch them. If they try and run from the Banshees, they're backing up, they can't shoot again. And so that's kind of the role I see Banshees playing as being a harassing unit that can come in and keep try and keep things locked up that you don't want shooting. Um, kind of like back a couple editions ago, we tried to always make sure we hit tanks and got the shaken results so they couldn't um, <laughs> shoot back at you. It's like, oh, you don't need to kill tanks, just like stun lock them. I kind of see Banshees kind of doing that. And I, I'm like you, I always want to try and include a Banshee unit in my armies because I just think they're a fun unit to use. Well, and I would say that, uh, yeah, if you're going, I wouldn't use them to harass vehicles in oh, this no, edition. Yeah, no, no, they're, they're an infantry hunter. Um, but, uh, depending on how you use them and in a bigger game, you'll want to have them in a transport so you can get them across the board faster. Right. But, uh, once you do, I mean, pick something that you just want to, have constantly struggling and just go after it. And remember that falling back also prevents you from using psychic powers as well. So if there's like, like if they have a particularly troublesome psyker you want to go after, or um, if there's a unit, like if you're playing against uh, something that has like brotherhood of sorcerers or brotherhood of psychers, like gray knights, you like go after a gray knights unit that the, you know, biggest weakness of banshees is still their strength. I mean, that's that's something that they're just going to struggle with and not much you can do about that. Although, hey, if Power Swords actually become plus one strength, that will be much better. That will fix a lot of the Banshee's problems right there. So I'm crossing my fingers for that one. Right. But, uh, it, yeah, it, it really it's going to come down to the size of game you're playing in the Crusade League. Um, Crusade games are supposed to start at 50 PL. So in early games, they may do better than in later games. And I think that's one thing to keep in mind as, as we will talk about later that a thousand points feels very, or 50 PL feels very different than, than a 2000 point game. Uh, but uh, I think there's ways to use them, but it's going to require changing up 
what you send them after. And I think you're absolutely right, Dennis. I think as a harasser unit, that's where they're really going to shine. Yeah, like if you can find some heavy things, like I'll, I'll use an example of broadsides. Um, they won't kill the broadsides, but they'll tie up broadsides so they, they have to back up and then can't fire the missile pods at you, which is kind of yep. nice. Um, and then like, as far as like bringing out an army's flavor, when their, their units are going through a rough patch, um, you definitely touched on it with, uh, like if you have access to create your own sub faction rules, uh, that can go a long way towards capturing that feel. Also, sometimes it's like, you have to do, you have to make that hard call. It's like, how, how dedicated am I to the flavor of this army that I'm willing to take a less efficient choice because I just enjoy running it. And I don't think it's, it just depends on what your goal is. Is your goal to win regard? Like, I don't want to say win at all costs, because that has a very negative connotation, but like, are you willing to sacrifice, sacrifice flavor for power? Or are you willing to take the power hit to play something more to your liking? Yeah, like I, I, my head immediately goes to Chaos Marines just because it always does. <laughs> but like, how how long has it been? Like basically since Cultus came out, where you would go up against a Chaos Marine player, and there might be two guys in power armor. Like you might have a sorcerer, and there may be like uh, an HQ, and then it's Cultus and possessed or vehicles and things like that, and that can be flavorful, but. If you're wanting to play like one of the chaos legions, you basically just knew that you were playing a suboptimal uh, build. And as you said, it just kind of depends what you're trying to do. If you're trying to build something that is very flavorful, then kind of doesn't matter. Just go for it and have fun. Um, I think about the, you know, the 80 berserker list that I ran. It's like, that was flavorful. It was really suboptimal. Um, like yeah, if you're trying to be competitive, you know, to to win games and be competitive, yeah, you're gonna have to make some of those sacrifices and take some of the better units as they go through their cycle. That's just it's kind of the game. Yeah, and you can look for try to see if there are alternatives that are more efficient and fill similar niches. But if there's like particular units, like if you are a Tau player and you are a hardcore Vespid fan, first of all, I'm very sorry for you. <laughs> but uh, but if that's your thing, then you figure out like figure out strategies on how to use them. And if it's maybe it's just having, I just need to have one of those units in there just just for my flavor. Like I'll take the hit and run one unit that's not as efficient, knowing that I can build the rest of the army around it and try to make up for whatever lack of punch or durability it has. Um, it, it, you just have to decide if, if that's a, a sacrifice you're willing to make, if that is worth it to you. Um, if you're really wanting to capture the flavor of an army and especially with like crusade being a narrative based, I would think you would lean, lean harder into the narrative aspect than the power. But again, that's up to you. And I don't think there's a wrong decision here. It's just, really comes down to what do you want out of the army? And uh, yeah. yeah, every every army goes through rough patches. Every army has units that, uh, I mean, even Space Marines have in entire sections of their codex that never get, that never see play. And maybe they might after their codex realignment, but there will still be some that are not as good as others. That's just the nature of balance. 
is that there will always be like if you you only have so many points to work with, if you're trying to build a solid take all comers list, you're going to have to take the better options. So just again, it just comes down to what you want out of it. All right, next up, we have a letter from Clay Sudrath. Clay writes, uh, Greetings, friends. Thank you for taking the time to go through the entirety of the ninth edition rulebook in a concise manner. I'll be pointing people at your podcast if they want an overview. Well, thank you, Clay. Uh, I'm excited. I'm more excited now for ninth than before, at least with some of my armies. I would like to comment on one thought. The sidebar about how to handle ending the game early raised the same same concern. But my time playing magic competitively taught me that if someone tries to weaponize the rules against you, you turn it right back on them. Here's an example. A player. Okay, so we have a couple of turns left, but you're going to run away with the game. Do you just want to call it here and math it out? That guy. That means you're conceding and getting zero points. Player. No, I was offering to end the game early. That guy. Yeah, if you want to quit, you're conceding. Well, as you wish. It's my turn. Command phase, I take my, I gain my point, take no actions. Movement phase, I have no aircraft, so I take no actions. Psychic, I take no actions. Charge, I make no actions. Fight. Let's roll that one combat that is active. I will resolve morale, and it's your turn. And then you make them play out their turn, repeating this process till the game is done. It's the same effect as if they agreed to end the game early, but you're not letting them cheese anything away from you. I would now like some help with my beloved bugs. I am at a loss for how to run my Tyranids. How I wanted to run them, Swarm Lord yeeting Gene Stealers at you turn one and keeping up the pressure will not work, as that army was kill-focused instead of objective-focused. I have a core in the surprisingly tough warrior block, give them the ignore AP 1 and 2 adaptation, put a Malanthrope in the middle of them, and they're surprisingly resilient. Maybe add a Tyranid Prime if you if I want to buff them. Gene Stealers will be able to make good use of strategic reserves to outflank in later turns, but I can no longer use them to put on pressure turn 1. A Turvagon surrounded by Termagants will be fantastic board control, but I don't feel like moving 150 models around the board. It's just too many for me. Any thoughts on what directions Tyranids need to build? As is, I'm uh, planning on playing my Marines and or Custodes till Tyranids get a new codex, as I think we just got worse unless you want to play Nidzilla or a Termagant parking lot. As for the Custodes, since holding objectives is now more important than killing, should I just build all my Custodian Guard with Sword and Shield? Two up, three up, uh, with three wounds, even when out in the open seems like it would be very hard to shift without devoting a lot of qual- quality firepower. What do you think? As always, thanks for everything you guys put out. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Clay Sudrith, Hive Mind of Hive Fleet Lazarus, Chapter Master of the Raging Panthers, and Aspiring Shield Captain. So, three things there. Um, and I will say that let's put a pin in Tyranids until we can get Richard on. Yeah. Because he <laughs> will really have taken... <laughs> yeah, he will have taken a, a closer look at that in the meantime. Uh, so, sorry about that aspect. Uh, I do think that there are going to be builds that are just not viable in ninth, as far as being winning combinations. And and Clay's absolutely right. Going for a kill-focused army is probably not the way to go right now. And we'll talk more about that in the second half of our show. Uh, but his other two points, first on um, somebody weaponizing the rules against you and you just weaponizing them back. Um, I mean, that's definitely, the I think, the right way to handle it is if somebody is trying to game you out of, out of the system, just refuse to play that game and just, mm-hmm. like in this case, rather than conceding, just make them play out the game. I think that's the right take. But, uh, well, and and I'll say in regards to like the conceding early or like ending the game early with every game being five rounds, like don't roll for anything else. 
that becomes less of an issue, which is probably one of the reasons why they they did that. Where mm. it's like, nope, the game ends earlier. You just don't have to worry about it. Because at most, like in our game, we talked about me conceding, I think, on four and or, you know, ending it early on four. But we went ahead and played it out. And really, it it was one of those where like, if we had done that, it would have been one turn that we would have had to kind of Know, fictionally play to like get the scoring um so like i don't i i think it would be very difficult to have a game where you're going through i mean maybe maybe it would but it just seems like you wouldn't have a situation where you'd be going three or four extra turns kind of like figuring out uh you know what the score would be it seems like in most cases you're going to be playing it till the very end where it's you know if you have to play that game of okay i take my turn you do your thing I, you're going to get through it pretty quickly yeah, because unless you get like alpha struck severely off the board or like you're not tabled, but you have very little left by like the end of round two, you you might as well play it out. And uh, yeah, there's going to be a few situations where you're really going to have to game it out. But at the same time that there is always that concern about, well, telling the difference between like you said, calling it early and mathing it out versus conceding. And I do think the rules actively discourage you from conceding. It's, it's just making sure that your opponent is on the same page that I'm not conceding. Let's just like, we know you're going to win. Let's just see how this goes. Cause technically at that point, you're still mutually playing the game. If you're just, I, I would argue that mathing the game out is still playing because it's still interactive between the two players, even if it doesn't involve moving models around. I would agree with that. Um, and then as far as custodes, custodes we can talk about because we do have our one of our custodes players here. <laughs> we have two of them. Well, yeah, because yeah. Kevin, you, you technically have custodes as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say that they're, I mean, because hold objectives is good, I think it's absolutely it's absolutely a good route to to go by having a, a storm shield, at least a storm shield unit to hold objectives. Uh, that's also what I did in eighth edition. So I two up three up is just good. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with that. So I, there are a little bit more expensive than guardian spear custodes. So that's the only pause that I would have of building all of them that way. Well, but yeah, like you definitely want to take a unit or two with to, to hold objectives for sure. I said the other the pause of that is the range goes way down. They they have only a twelve inch threat bubble in because the mm-hmm. pistol swords are only twelve inches. That's so, true. So I mean, it's great to put that um, if you do want to have at least. I, I do recommend yeah one unit definitely of the shields, the storm shield, so that way you can actually hold something you want to, or you can still have them kind of moving forward to an advanced position to then hold it because. Pick an objective you know your opponent's going to try and move to because that 12-inch range, as Rob knows from my, my Eldar saying, is I hate 12-inch range. I, it's just so small. <laughs> um, so, and with the whole Custodes army being objective secured anyway, yeah, that's the only, the only benefit you're getting is the plus one invulnerable, which is definitely nice. But if you've got, um, I don't want to say hot dice, but if your dice are rolling well, three to four, it's a difference. But yeah. I think having a the twelve inch bubble of threat is not as good as having twenty four. 
um, for the Guardian Spears. And I will, I will say, I will say this and caveat all of my custodes advice as with I roll like shit when I play custodes, so that skews my results. <laughs> um, I will say that yes, a two, you know, the two up, three up, um, invuln save, you know, storm shields are very hard to shift, but so too are the guardian spears. Like two up, four up is still really good, um, and the extra command points that you now have because everybody has more command points there's actually a lot of really good defensive stratagems for custodes to like fight again if you're on an objective or i think reroll ones if you're on an objective or you know there's a lot of those types of things where like you get benefits for holding objectives if you spend the stratagem they're now all of a sudden viable because you have more command points so i don't it's not a bad idea to have the storm shields, but I think the guardian spears are also, you can make a good case for those two. And and another thing you might look at, if you're just looking to make things hardier is war, the spider, um, shadow keepers, um, like the warlord trait, you can make the lock warden where the, they subtract one from their hit rolls going against him. And, or if you, they have the grim responsibility stratagem with that group where any unit from your army is chosen from an attack and you subtract one from the strength characteristic of that attack, which that's huge because you've already got five toughness on the custodes. Dropping the strength of an opponent's weapon at the right time could make them hitting you on fours to hitting you on fives. Or to wounding you. Or, yeah, wounding you on five. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that that would be another way if you want to make a really defensive... I'm going to like not take as much damage custodes army. Also, depending on what you're doing with that, you know, even though they have a, a smaller bubble of uh, threat, that might be a good unit to use for doing actions where you don't That's need true. them necessarily to be very proactive. You just need them to be resilient and survive a turn. That is That's true. Call. And with a smaller the bubble, yeah, you won't be shooting with them, so you won't be tempted to like have them do anything else. And the shields make them hardier. So yeah, no, I wasn't thinking about using them as actions, but they are probably the best unit in the custodes to use for actions. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, Clay, that gives you a couple of ideas to think of. And yeah, we will we will come back to your tiered question once we have Richard back on the show. So if you'll be patient and bear with us, we will get that answered. Um, then next up, we have a letter from Ben Osborne. Uh, ben writes, Hi again, preferred enemies team. Many thanks to the responses to the last question on Tyranids. Now I th- thought it would be interesting to get your thoughts on a topic that has been intriguing me a little. Painting scores. Uh, From what I've seen of tournaments, there's typically a three-color minimum applied. Now, this is where I get a little concerned and somewhat put off. You see, as I am colorblind, mainly red-green, this is a slight worry in terms of style of painting. I typically keep to colors I am comfortable with. Now, for some armies, this can lead to a very limited palette. Is there any advice you would give to help with this conundrum? Not expecting to win any prizes for my painting, but would not want to feel too penalized due to this, let alone the horror of finding out that I had painted a set of nomad horses green because I used what was called a horse tone. Uh, Attached is a picture, sorry about the quality, of one of my Tyranid figures painted recently. Best regards, Ben Osborne. And uh, he attaches a picture of a a nice flyrant, um, kind of in a, I would say, a little bit of a monochrome, like, bluish tone to it. Like, blue with, like, blackish look. Like, it's hard to tell what kind of 
what color the chitin is, but looks kind of like dark gray or black. Um, yeah. Looks fine, like painting wise. Yeah, it, looks- it absolutely meets the three color minimum. Like that's that's absolutely like that gets you a pretty decent paint score. If the rest of the army's painted like that, mm-hmm. that gets you a pretty decent paint score at most tournaments. Um, things you can do uh, with because Nids are actually an army that handle a limited palette very well mm-hmm. because you basically to really make Nids work, you need a like one color for flesh and one color for chitin. And then you can, if you want to add a third color for teeth uh, or um, like claws, things like that, or eyes. Uh, and if you've got like gradient from just doing washes and dry brushing, that will count as a third color effectively. Um, so uh, if there if there's something you're looking for uh, that like. You've got some, I think it's high, is it high fleet Leviathan that is like white skin and like dark purple carapace? Yes. Yeah. yeah that's that's a very easy yeah. one. And that should, you shouldn't have any problems with colors on that. Um, and again, just dry brush that chitin with a lighter purple, um, and then find a color for, uh, you know, for, uh, the side details. And if you're unsure on what color is, don't be hesitant to ask somebody say like, Hey, I need like, what would like, I have trouble perceiving, like if I wanted to use red, but I have trouble perceiving red. Um, if you do it on like Leviathan where against the white body, it's going to be very high contrast. Um, you're really going to be able to tell the difference of where you're painting it. Um, just have somebody help you pick out a red paint for it. Um, yeah. Uh, other ideas I've seen, like there's another, I've seen some where there's like, you have black chitin, but you have like bright yellow, like stripe markings on it. That, that will be very, very bold, but also should really, like if you have black with yellow, you shouldn't, your color blindness shouldn't have too much of an issue with that. And depending on how good you're great, like you can tell different colors one scheme I've seen become very popular lately, and it's it's actually really – it takes a little bit of practice to pull off neatly, but it, it's pretty much just done with a couple of different spotter brushes. And you can buy spotters at, like, any hobby – like, art or hobby store. Like, you can buy cheap spotter brushes at, like, Hobby Lobby or Michael's or Joann's uh, in stateside, assuming. I'm not sure what, uh, like, across, what there would be across the pond or, you know, wherever you may be. But uh, Coconut Crab – Kyranids, where they use, like, they you basically paint the um, carapace like a very light off-white, like an eggshell tone, and then you use, like, a light brown and a dark brown, and you just basically, like, make clusters of dots, like, starting in the middle, and then the dots get a bit more spread out as you go out, and you do that with the lighter tone first, and then you do the darker tone on top of that, but you just do spotting, and it looks like, if you've ever seen pictures of, like, coconut crabs, which are huge... Um, it looks just like their carapace, and it's a really neat, very organic level. And again, it's just spotting. So, and you could even like you could practice your spotting technique on a like a piece of paper or cardboard that you've like put some primer on it, put that off white as a base, and just you know practice on that. Um, and that could give you again a, just like a very bold, very interesting look without being a very difficult look to pull off and without really having color conflictions. So that might be one to, to take a look at, but what you have right here 
would be fine. I would I would uh, encourage as well, like if you're going to tournaments or if you're planning on because you mentioned tournaments and the painting scores, um, if you're concerned or you're not not sure if your your color works for them, message the TO. Tell them your situation, tell them, you know, colorblind and, and, you know, you have issues and send them some pictures. Be like, would this be okay? You know, would this, what would this get as a passing score? Um, You know, or or things like that, just to kind of get to kind of gauge the specific events that you're thinking of going to. And I think most TOs would be willing to, to, to look at it and give you like a paint score. So like, if again, like since we were TOs, if we had like full, pictures of the army we could probably do like a paint score and be like oh yeah under our metric it would probably get you know xyz score and then kind of give you the feedback that we would give to like a normal normal person you know a normal uh, person at the event so yeah like i think most tos would probably be willing to, to give you feedback on that as well so looking at like the zoomed in version of what he posted he's got a little bit of color on the tongue he's done the teeth and the tips of the claws and kind of like a gradient from that dark blue to white he's got good gradients on the wings i would need to see the back of it to see like what he's done on the on the shell but yeah this would be a probably a higher end of average easily yeah, absolutely yeah i mean this this would look just fine and an army like this and he's he, like he's done a nice contrast with the base the base has some nice natural rock work going on as well as a good use of crackle paint on the base uh the rim needs to be cleaned up a little bit but i'm assuming this is still a work in progress um yeah an army a, an army built like this and done consistently would look fine like he's actually like got some good subtle stuff going on in the membranes on the wings. This army, this, this model looks good. So absolutely, uh, yeah, like I would give this a, a pretty decent paint score. I would have to see the rest of the army around it and see this at a couple of different angles to really like give a, 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 a good, you know, an actual like accurate score, but this is a very good start. So Ben, you don't have anything to to really feel if this is what your painting standard is, you don't have anything to really feel uncomfortable with. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's I will painting that I can do. <laughs> I will say that if you are absolutely if you are concerned, I mentioned this about like picking out paint, but if you are concerned about how your color choices are working together or if you're concerned that you're not able to visualize some of the the subtleties, there's nothing wrong with asking for a second set of eyes. I can think of a local player who was building a uh, display board. He was playing Dark Angels at the time, and he built a display board of the motor pool, like the garage opening up for the Ravenwing coming out of like a base on the rock. And he had built it out of uh, pink insulation styrofoam, which is a common miniature building like for doing display boards and stuff. But he's also slightly red green colorblind. So he had like he did not realize until he brought the board to an event for judging that he hadn't primed it and paint put as many layers of paint on it as he needed to. And so there was a slight pinkish feel to all the gray stonework. Because he just couldn't per- he couldn't didn't see the pink. It just looked like layers uh, like it just kind of melded in with the gray for him so uh it and it's like he even said like i wish i had shown this to someone else because then they could tell me i'm not you know i i need more 
more base paint on this. So if you're ever unclear, if you're ever uncertain on how your stuff is coming across or how your color palette's working, do not hesitate to ask somebody. There's nothing wrong with getting a second opinion. Even if you're perfectly, uh, you know, if you have no visual issues, having somebody look at something and like say, hey, does this work? Is this color combination working? It doesn't hurt to ask. So you're saying that the bright yellow and uh, neon blue is a bad color scheme? Um, I'm not <laughs> not saying that, but I'm also saying that depending on what your technique is, I you could make it work, but always get a second opinion if you're unclear. <laughs> so, so, Kevin, if you go and bring back the Dave Glow Necrons, I, I kind of want to see that. I, I'm actually there and I'm putting them in my car to take take them back with me so I can work on them. <laughs> They won't be day glow yellow forever. I am gonna probably change that. Yeah, that makes me sad. I'd rather see day glow necrons. That just sounds awful. Yeah, I don't know that there's much I can do with them. At this well, point. One day I want to get a spare. Like I just want somebody to send me like a spare or find a way to pick one up on like eBay. Get a spare necron warrior and figure out a way to make that that color palette work. And actually yeah. find a way to make it look decent. I, I I can't promise that I can do it, but I would like to give it a try. And for our final letter, we have a letter from Eric Cacase. Eric writes, hey, guys, quick question for you from one TO to another. How will you be changing how you run tournaments in Ninth edition? For example, will tournament packets be obsolete? Uh, will paint judging uh, be done during registration to ensure the 10 points for battle-ready armies? Uh, will there be changes to existing terrain? I look forward to your always a thoughtful insight, Eric. Oh, yeah. So I just want to say Eric is the TO out in Phoenix for the uh, Scorched Earth Open, uh, which they had to cancel this year due to COVID. And he also runs the uh, Exterminatus podcast, which is uh, more competitively focused than ours. But I highly recommend giving it a listen. And uh, so I also wanted to use this moment to bring up the fact that we just had the first major 40K tournament stateside uh, that I'm aware of, and definitely first in the middle in the Midwest. Uh, Flying Monkey Con just finished uh, this past weekend. And um, I will I'll be absolutely upfront. I had my misgivings about them running an event. My I, I personally would not have. Yeah, I, but but um, they did do like a video walkthrough uh, before the event started and they showed that all the tables like they're in a big ballroom. All the tables are spaced out. Every player was getting a bottle of hand sanitizer along with like their tournament prep stuff and masks are going to be strictly required during the event. So um, and they were able to pull out like the weekend went through smoothly to the best of our knowledge. And uh, Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they even did give yellow cards for people who weren't wearing masks properly. They did. They were giving out. They did give out a few yellow cards for people that were spotted without wearing masks. Um, they, you know, they they would. I don't know if they gave any warnings or yellow cards, but they did work. They did say that they were giving warnings for people that weren't following like social distance protocols. Um, you know, if you were grabbing other people's dice or something like that, like they were like, Hey, keep everything separate, you know, just so it, it, I also had some misgivings about it because it's, it's a tough time. Like we're going through a pandemic right now. Like, uh, 
but they did seem to take every reasonable reasonable precaution they could to run the event as safely as possible and you know like i said nobody had any has had any issues so far it's been a week you know so uh my hope is that works like i would love to get back to a point where we're able to play games safely and develop these protocols to allow us to have games and you know not have issues and not not worry not have to worry about spreading it but it's Mm -hmm. also going to require a level of commitment from the players as well to you know take that extra time make sure you're not having other someone else's rule book or moving their models and like just just being aware and I'll also be upfront that uh, one of my concerns at this point is is not so much the event running itself. Like the obviously they took all the all the proper precautions that they could and still run run an event that of the kind that they wanted to run. And I do and I absolutely give the the Monkey Crew uh, kudos for that. They they did a very good yeah. job. My concern is the things that are outside of their control because it happens outside the purview of the event hall. So will people follow those social distancing guidelines when they meet afterwards? Because we, you know, gamers do, we get together, we're there to hang out. We're seeing our friends sometimes from across the country. We want to hang out afterwards. Are they going to still be wearing masks and social distancing after you're also holding an event at a hotel or is everyone at the hotel going to be following the same precautions you are does like what happens if somebody enters the gaming hall who isn't part of your event and you don't really have direct control of you can't yellow card them you can ask them to leave but and again these are these are a lot of what if scenarios there are a lot of corner cases it's we will like the proof will be in the pudding within another week. Like if if nothing has happened from 14 days, then absolutely congratulations are warranted. And, and I don't want to cut. I don't want to deny the fact that they did everything. As far as I concerned, they did everything as well as they could have. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so it's, it may sound like we're, it may sound like we're being like nitpicking, like, well, how do you handle this? How do you handle this? But unfortunately for, a while like for the foreseeable future that is the reality of public events and if you're organizing the event and you're taking the responsibility to have the event that's part of it you have to think of these things so mm-hmm. you know to eric's question about like how is this going to change event planning and event tournaments and stuff like you're gonna covid is a big part of that because you're gonna have to consider how these events know all of those aspects of the events and how you you know what your area is doing as far as social distancing and mask requirements and how you're you know maintaining the space how you're you know do you require gloves like it's all those things because those are you know to some degree those are your responsibility if you're choosing to put on the event so it's uh I, i give them props it was the first event back that i that at least that i know of in the states like big event it seemed to go smoothly they seem to be do everything they could. We'll we'll see. I mean, we've we've seen in professional sports, uh, you know, professional athletes with millions of dollars of budgets still have issues with COVID. So I don't necessarily even view it as a failure on their side if something something comes out like average. Like oh, somebody did catch it there. I still think they did everything they could, and I and it mm-hmm. seems like they were doing their best, but it's just a reality of the world that we're in. So, 
Yeah. And sucks. Uh, we'll <laughs> yeah. see if uh if like if it turns out everything was fine, we'll hope that uh Iron Halo, which is in a couple of weeks, will be or which I think it's what? Iron Halo's at the thirty thirty two days from now. Okay, so and so it's a month away. So it's at the end of September. Or there mid to late late September. So one final thing I wanted to, wanted to say about Flying Monkey. Uh, congratulations to Brian Hunter who got engaged. Uh, oh, at did he? The, end of the event. Yes. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations, so Brian. They posted video on there uh, on the Flying Monkey page. Uh, so you know, go tell him congratulations. So I, I wanted <laughs> to make sure I mentioned that as well. <laughs> but yeah, we hope that in a month Iron Halo is able to have an event that goes just as smoothly. And again, they've. Uh, I know Jason is basically putting the same kind of protocols. He's reduced the size of the event. He's, you know, they're, they're requiring masks. Um, I, I, you know, again, I'm not traveling this year. So um, I'm unfortunately like last year I got my like five year badge for, you know, being there since, uh, fly, you know, since iron halo one and this year I have to miss it. But uh it is, you know, that is just that that's the state of things, but hopefully Jason's event will go smoothly as well. And I know Renegade, while the Renegade open, like the major event has like the over overarching event has been canceled um, early November. They are going to be doing a, uh, a, a 40 K GT, which will be about what 40 to 50 players. I think, I think they've said 50 mm-hmm. is what they're shooting, for. which is still half the size of what they normally do. Yes. So, yeah. So, I mean, it is still going to be reduced in scale from past years, but, you know, hopefully um, nothing gets worse between now and November or even now and late September so that these events are still able to go forward in some some fashion. The The safest way to play is still outside, but I also know that that's not always – for a large event, that may not be doable. Although I believe there was one about a month or so ago – in Canada, where they actually did have everybody outside. Nice. Okay, I don't no, I, want to do outside playing in Minnesota in November. No, Ooh. no, absolutely not. <laughs> I, I, I just want to say, like, you know, it's good to see events happening again. And, as, you know, and I'm glad that people, TOs are, are taking the responsibility and, you know, trying to make them as safe as possible. I'm not going to ever encourage or tell anybody like, no, you can't do this or whatever. I would just say to make sure that if you're planning on going to an event, be respectful of the TO's wishes, be respectful of the other players, follow their rules. If you're going to go to an event and not wear the mask and a mask is required, just don't go. Like it, it's, it's not worth it. Like this is a, a crazy situation that we're in right now. If you go follow the rules be respectful. It's tough on everybody. The TOs are trying to figure this out you know, while the players are trying to figure it out. So just, just be flexible, be more patient than normal. And if you're not comfortable going to an event like this, then don't go like, and that's a perfectly reasonable way to handle it. Like there's, I'm not, I'm also not going to go to renegade open this year. And it's like, I really want to go, but yeah, I don't, I don't feel comfortable going to a large event. I don't feel comfortable traveling to get to the large event. So the best thing for me to do is just skip a year. But if you can make it and you're comfortable going there and you're willing to follow the rules, go and have a blast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of those cases, but also understand that like, you know, you are kind of taking your health and the health of the people around you in in your hands. So, you know, 
just be aware of that. And uh, so, yeah, just, you know, be cognizant of that if you travel to one of these events or just attend a local one. Uh, but I don't. I think we're kind of getting away from the, the yeah. meat of Eric's so, question. So other than COVID, yeah. As far yeah, as other than COVID, edition, as far as ninth edition, question. <laughs> well, as far as ninth edition affecting tournaments, uh, like Flying Monkey still had a t- had a had a a tournament pack, and Halo still looks like it's going to have a tournament pack. So I don't think tournament packs are necessarily going to go away. I think they're just going to shift in what's included in them. I think the big one is going to be explaining terrain like using that tournament packet to explain like the layout of the event because we always had on ours like a schedule of events what time check-in is where check-in is you know things like where the bathroom is how to you know when lunch want, uh, when lunch will be things like that i think also it's going to be important that that space for like what would have been the missions uh that you know you don't include there anymore because they're all in the gt pack it can be used for this is what different types of terrain are. This is what every system of terrain management you use is so that it's very clear and in the rules pack uh, ahead of time for the players. And I, I, th- I think you'll also have like, you'll have scoring sheets at the end. Unfortunately, GW has given us like, this is what a tournament scoring sheet should look like. Mm-hmm. So we'll have a consistent build there. Um, but yeah, and also you'll you want to tell people, hey, round one, we're going to be using this mission. Round two, this mission. Round three, this mission. So, I mean, but you won't have to reprint the missions. Yeah, that's the nice thing. I think something else that might end up in a tournament packet now is like a clear, the clear rules for like the paint rubric. Because if we don't have to print the missions, that's, that is something that people will want to see. Now, paint judging during registration to ensure the 10 points for battle-ready armies. I don't think there's time to do it during registration. Yeah. But I do I do think you could basically put a... Like, you will have to put a strict... Like... And most tournaments have this already. Like, a strict three-color, like, minimum. Like, battle-ready minimum for armies. Like, if you are not... If your army is not this then you either you just don't play. And there definitely have been events where judges will go around and pull models from tables. Like, yeah, you can't use this arm this this unit anymore. Like you're gonna yeah, be play, I, playing down this unit for the rest of the tournament. Yeah, I don't feel like this is as big a shift as as it seems. It's just kind of codifying what was already happening at most events. Mm-hmm. Most events required that three color minimum most events pulled unpainted models unless there was an exception, you know, or some reason why they were unpainted. Um, but I don't really expect that it'll, it'll impact the 10 points per for the game enough that you would need to do paint judging first. Um, but I think you, you do need to make it very clear that, you know, to get those points, you, you absolutely have to have a three color minimum painted army. Yeah. And Again, it's one of those things where I'm I'm hoping that it doesn't get weaponized, but again, I could see players doing it. Like if you have a high level game that is in contention, like round five, if it's being brought up in round five or round six, that's really too late. Somebody should have noticed it by then. But like round mm-hmm. one or two, somebody like there will be people that call other people's armies into question. This is just a thing that's going to happen from time to time. 
the best way around it is just to make sure that you're very clearly battle ready. Yes. Yeah. So uh, don't don't even think of trying to paint an army dodgily. Don't do the I've put three stripes of color on it because that that is not going to cut it. You know it's not going to cut it. Don't be cute about it. The packet sh- like the tournament packet shows you what battle ready looks like, and it's mm-hmm. not hard. So. Absolutely. There there should be no question. Um, changes to existing terrain, I think that falls under what you were saying about, like, defining terrain very clearly. And you could yeah. even say, like, like if you have certain pieces of terrain that get used, like, you use a lot of Nova Ls, for example, or, like, you can have photos of, like, terrain like this is considered ruins or even if it's not like the generic types uh like it uses these traits boom 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 and i think flying monkey did something yeah, like that it, they did yeah and that was something i wanted to mention they had little um tokens made up that basically just set on the piece of terrain and the tokens basically listed or or indicated uh what type of terrain it was so for example if a building was ruins heavy cover and light cover it would have a, a little chit that had those three things listed on it. And those, you know, that had to remain like on the piece of terrain when the game was done uh, for, for future games and stuff. So you, you codify whatever system you're using to determine the train in the, in the mission pack. So, you know, even if it's something as simple as little, like, you know, poker chips or something, if you see this color chip means this, this means this means this means this, then you don't even necessarily have to go to the trouble of like taking a picture and including it in the pack. You can just say, you know, these are the types that are using and things are how they're marked so that there's hopefully no issues. Uh, once the game start now, you will have to make sure that you keep an eye on that between games, just so the stuff doesn't get moved or removed or anything, but um, those systems without its faults, but terrain being, Terrain being different now, being vastly different than eighth, is going to require at least a little bit of uh, more management now. But I think yeah. it makes for a much better game, so I'm okay with it. Yeah, and I do think the the variety of terrain is going to be improved. Like more pieces of terrain will be useful without having to be like the gigantic line of sight blockers that were pretty much required in the previous edition. Exactly. I mean, you'll be able to decide that like an entire block of terrain is obscuring or provides cut light cover, heavy cover, dense cover. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think there's like forests will actually be useful again. Uh, broken wall sections are useful again. And I can vouch for that from the games we played. Um, so it's like, just great. Cause I have a bunch of those terrain that I can actually use now. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually, it, if anything, it's opened up the, the amount of terrain that can be used. So, uh, I do think ninth ninth edition changes terrain, but in a very good way. But yeah, it uh, it puts a little bit of responsibility on the TOs to like predefine how they're treating certain terrain. But that you know, like you said, the packet. This all kind of comes back to the is the packet obsolete? No, there's room to def- you actually have room to define this now that you don't have to have all the missions and deployment maps in there. So it's win win. So I think ninth. I think tournaments are actually going to be far better in ninth. I think so too. 
And if you have a letter you want to write to us, a question for us, uh, something you want to share, get our opinion on, or provide a correction, whatever it may be, um, there's three good ways to get that to us. First is to email us, and our email addresses are our first names at preferredenemies.com. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferredenemies.com. Second is our Facebook page. We are at facebook.com slash preferredenemies. You can like us there, follow us, and see what we're working on, what's happening in our neck of the woods, what our commentary is on things and you can message us there a uh, third is we are on twitter we are at twitter at uh preferred enemy singular so twitter.com slash preferred enemy and we take questions from all three of those we collate them together put them into the hopper and get them in uh to answer as many of them as we can in the episode i believe this empties out our hopper although we may have one or two army list reviews I'll have to see if there's still ninth edition reviews because eighth edition reviews, eighth edition is so different at this point, even though it doesn't seem it, it is. But uh, if you want to get a letter to us, now is the perfect time. Um, we do also have a Patreon. And while I understand uh, the economic situation for everyone may not be great, uh, if it is, if it's not great, please feel no obligation to continue to give to us or to give to us in the first place. But if you like what we do and you want to help support us, even though we are not uh, traveling to events, um, I will give, I, I will, in the sake of transparency, uh, we did use show funds to buy rule books and uh, chapter approves for Dennis and Richard as they did not get, we only get like one preview copy of everything. So had to provide that uh, to them. So you helped make that possible. And since we're not going to any events that gave them the materials that they needed to be able to uh, review the show, or, you know, review this material with us. Uh, Kevin, you were on your own. Sorry, I can't go to your store and yeah. buy stuff for you. It's fine. It's fine. I get it. I offered. You did. You did. <laughs> Not to I, travel. Screw that. But, you know. Oh, yeah. No, it, it was for me. It made sense because I I was lucky enough to get uh, two copies of Indominus. So, like, I had rule books, so it didn't matter, you know. <laughs> uh, but, yes, if uh, if if you want to help support us and that includes helping us with paying for hosting and uh, keeping our equipment functional, especially now that we have all gone completely remote and, uh, you know, occasionally microphones break down, USB cables give out, uh, software needs updating, things like that. Or you can help us by going to patreon.com slash preferred enemies. Uh, none of our episodes are behind a paywall. So, uh, you, you, you know, you're not paying, you're not missing out on anything if you don't give. Uh, and if you do want to give, it's basically just an online tip jar. Uh, and even if it's just a dollar, enough people put in a dollar, it adds up. But if you would much rather, um, there's plenty of, uh, of charities and services probably in your area. Uh, food banks, um, funds for the homeless or to help people fight off a, a potentially oncoming evictions uh, with uh, a lot of eviction protection uh, kind of dissolving in the last month or so. So if you can, if uh, we would recommend helping people out in that way rather than helping us out, we're doing okay on show funds. We don't have anything uh, we need to buy at the moment. So uh so, you know, help out your community first. And then if you feel like you want to help support us, we gladly will we'll take the support. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and take a break for sponsor identification. And when we come back, uh, we'll be talking about our first games of Ninth Edition and our takeaways. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them. We paint them. We love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. 
And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from GameMat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a GameMat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and that means it is time for our main topic, which is we finally got to play a couple of games in Ninth Edition, and now we will tell you what we think of it. Because the last few months of talking has all been theoretical or reviewing what we have read and not actually practical. So, um, so I just uh, gotta say the game sucks. I don't want to play it anymore. <laughs> You're just saying that because you lost <laughs> again. That is also fair. But I also lost, so I don't want to play anymore either. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will say Dennis finally has done something that he has it has taken him five, six editions of the game to do. I still say nine because <laughs> it's not edition. Yeah, well, <laughs> that technically you didn't beat beat my Tau in first through third editions either. Not that we were playing, not that Tau were playable in second. Nobody, none of us have ever played Rogue Trader and Tau. Well, Tau were available in third, but none of us were playing then. But yes, uh, Dennis did finally beat my Tau. It, it took uh, took this many additions and playing on a much smaller field to do it, and also the fact that Tau's kind of spotty right now. But anyway, so yes, uh, we were playing... Uh, we decided... To, for, well, first off, I was able to set up uh, a play space on my back porch uh, with a couple of folding tables, and uh, we decided to play... Like, we're going to play as the rule book intends, so we did... A thousand point armies on a 44 by 30, which was just as simple as putting two kill team boards together and basically just using terrain from like various kill team sets to make it, you know, because a lot of my, a lot of our terrain is packed away in our storage unit for the convention, but I have some here at home that I've mostly had available for kill team, but it works also quite nicely for ninth edition, especially now that like the little ruined wall sections actually provide some useful, uh, some useful blocking. Absolutely. 
But uh, yes, yeah, so we were able to set up a space where we were playing outside. We were masked. All of us were masked up the whole time. Uh, we had se- separate dice pools, separate everything. So we were uh, we were as, as safe as we could be. Uh, and I will say I didn't appreciate getting a yellow card for taking my mask off that one time, but that's fine. Uh, well, you know, I've got to be a strict <laughs> TO on this. Um, I, I it, the awkward part would have been if you had a second one and I would have had to ask you to leave. but uh but no so we played thousand points uh to see what incursion scale missions were like and we did use missions straight out of chapter approved the first game was on uh saturday versus uh kevin who was playing a death guard army i'd put together for him and so kevin uh what was your like i mean you uh, you played against my I played Bloody Rose Sisters. If you had to condense it down, what was your takeaway from the game? So, Sisters were totally designed for ninth with ninth in in mind, which is once they start playing, you can definitely tell that like some things that necessary that didn't necessarily make sense in eighth edition or were like that's kind of weird. Uh, it's it's was designed that way for ninth. Um, so uh, it's very clear that they were designed with ninth in in mind and it's very clear that death guard were the first eighth edition army (laughs) yeah so like there was there was a discrepancy in the way the armies played you also have to think a lot differently about building armies for a thousand points because i i i drove to kansas city so i didn't bring any of my armies with me so when we when we realized we were gonna have time to be able to play rob put together a list and basically took a you know, a normal 2000 point army and kind of said, okay, here's death guard list, split it in half. There you go. Here's a thousand points at a thousand points. I had two rhinos, two units of plague Marines, you know, a uh, uh, chaos Lord demon Prince. And I absolutely did not need the rhinos. I had no problem as death guard going anywhere on the board. I needed because the board's smaller, like it just mobility was not an issue. So, you really do have to build to the missions and the boards at all points levels, uh, which is good because it means that a thousand point games are going to feel different than 2000 point games, which opens up the possibility. And I don't know if this will happen. It opens up the possibility of events doing one day thousand point tournaments where you get four or five games in and just doing like a one day gt scale thousand point army tournament and that'll be it'll play completely different than your 2000 point gt tournaments so i think that's very fascinating scoring was a little awkward and it's just because getting used to it because you can score in so many different parts of the game some scoring happens at the end of the turn some happens at the end of the round some happens in the command phase some happens at the end of the game that can be a little bit of a whirlwind to track but uh, the ITC Battles app was already updated with the ninth edition missions. That helped a ton. Oh, I was so, very grateful uh, for that. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think that's just playing games will will speed that up and make that make more sense. Overall, it played a lot differently than I expected. I made some mistakes. I hadn't played a game in six months, but I had fun. Ninth edition plays. It plays very fast. We we got to the end of fi- the fifth round. Um, you know, so we played an entire game. In about two and a half hours, and that involved us stopping at least three different times for people that came by and said hi, as well as trying to figure out the missions and learning the scoring and kind of 
jackassing around a little bit because we hadn't talked in a while. So like playing at a very slow pace, we easily got five rounds in a two and a half hours at a thousand points. So yeah, that game could have easily taken an hour and a half if we had both been like paying attention. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, no, and you're absolutely right. The, the smaller field, and this is something that I think definitely uh, proved true in in the second game uh, with you, Dennis, was that uh, it lends itself very well to aggressive tactics. Oh yeah. I mean, that's the biggest thing that I noticed was on the smaller boards, melee units can get up, in people's faces quite quickly. Also, I always poo-pooed the 12 inch range on the Eldar. So I didn't take any of those. Um, no, I took my dire Avengers who had 18 inch ranges, took one of the craft world traits that gave them four extra inches. So I had 22 inches and 22 inches with, with a gun was enough to pretty much cover the board. If you were in the middle of it, he was out shooting Tau. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> <Anyway. laughs> Yeah, with, with with shuriken weapons, he was he was shooting as well, if not better than Tao. But yeah, it's uh, like Arthur in, in the game against Death Guard. I had, um, yeah, I had two units of Repentia, like two nine woman units of Repentia, and a unit of Penitent Engines. And I had the Penitent Engines in Assault turn one. Turn mm-hmm. two, I had, and I think I had one of the units of Repentia in Assault turn one because you chose to go first because you run yeah which was a mistake but yeah um, um yeah no there was there was three assaults that happened bottom of one well seeing my game kevin there were three assaults that happened in the top of one yeah so i was yeah, also thankful that, that rob put some infiltrators out to where i could easily get to them yeah i i, I and i, I misplayed there was a lot of misplaying i will say we're all rusty and also mm-hmm. it's you know the addition it's like Playing on a, as you said, playing on a smaller table is is a different beast entirely. And and one of the misplays that I did was so I I played uh, Harbinger's Death Guard, and I spent the you know I specifically spent the command points to be able to uh, have my Poxwalkers come in as a unit, you know, basically deep strike them from anywhere on the board. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have them infiltrate off the back board edge, and. I didn't think to pre-measure because, oh, well, this unit's setting on an objective. There's enough room to put it there. And I go to measure and I'm like, there's no place to put them because the board is so like so small. So I ended up having to put them in a completely suboptimal position and not do the strategy that I wanted. And that was j- purely because I didn't pre-measure and like think about the different board dimensions. But that's one of the factors like it's board control is much different with infiltrators and outflankers on a smaller board. Mm-hmm. Although I, I think Rob did well with his outflanker. It's actually using them as a second wave, so to speak. Cause like on, on my first turn, I had the Banshees come in, lock up two units, the shining spears. Oh my gosh, they have so much range. And so they locked up, well, they didn't lock up totally, but they attacked his, um, not shadow sun, his, my ghost keel. Ghost Keel, that's what it is. Uh, and so those, I had those three assaults going, but then the, the Banshees kind of then just kept on rolling at whoever his highest target was until Rob did the thing of, it's like, okay, that's enough of them. Crute, come on the board and go take out those Banshees. <laughs> Which they didn't end up doing, but they did basically tie you up for a turn. Which which bought me a little bit of breathing room. Didn't do it. And 
in the long in the grand scheme of things, it didn't really help much. But well, they didn't help much because on then when it got to my turn, I was able to psychically smite the last one there. Yeah, we have the banshees to go after Shadow Sun. Very much, yeah. That that it, it it they were a speed bump at best. But yeah, it's like the game. Like I was worried when I built my list because I'm used to putting the Repentia in rhinos so I can run them forward safely and then pop them out and have them do their thing. And I didn't have the points or power level to fit them in the way I wanted to. I'm mean, like I was I like I didn't have an exorcist. I didn't have. Like I didn't have nearly as much stuff as I normally have, like when I'm building a sister's list because I'm building at half points, but uh, it did not end up proving it proved not to be a problem at all because like, uh, yeah, I got the pendant and engines in into assault. And then like, there's a strat that lets you um, assault at or charge after advancing so I was able to get a decent advance roll on my Repentia and then like I had them into one of your rhinos turn one. Yeah. And they moved quite a bit across the board. Cause I think you had them, you didn't have them like play super aggressively out in front. Like they, they had to move quite a ways across the board and they, they were able to do it easily in one turn. Yeah. Cause I kind of had them like I had one up on one, like battlefield or uh, one uh, edge of my deployment zone. Cause we were playing a mission with like table quarters deployment zones and then one with on the other edge of it. And then, yeah, basically just kind of pushed them in different directions. And the one that had to go like long ways across the table with the advance and then charge. Yeah. They had no problem getting where I wanted them to. And then the other one ended up moving like all the way around the table and just murdering everything they touched but I was I was honestly surprised by just how well rapid assault works in this edition, and it's making you make that decision of like, okay, so which one do you want to Overwatch? Because you can only Overwatch one. And uh, also, like I took uh, Repentia Superiors with them, and what was interesting was they ended up being clutch units, not so much for the buffs they provide to the Repentia, which it is a nice buff, rerolling wounds of one. Absolutely. Uh, very useful. But more importantly, once the Repentia, because of charges, had outranged their bubble, they are perfect for performing actions. Because they don't have any guns. So it's like they're just a they're just you know a one woman squad standing there. And yeah, like we were doing the, the one where you uh did could uh, reconnoiter table quarters and score points that way. They would just stand on the table quarter and be like, okay, I'm gonna spin an action and stake this out. Yeah. And I can't shoot at you because they're characters and they were closer targets. So yeah, it was, that was a very interesting thing to kind of learn. Cause I think that once people kind of realize that, that like having those, those small characters and death guard has a bunch of them too, that are like the elite non HQ characters that are kind of cheap will be very valuable if you play them correctly in these missions. Oh, absolutely. And then I still had enough like troops units to be able to like hold objectives and like, I don't think like early on we were pretty even on objectives, but then eventually I was able to just push you off of them and eventually just like, cause it's control one, control two, control more. And yeah. once I had you off of, and we had like four objectives on the table. Once I had two of them and could keep you off of a third, I was scoring 15 points to your five every turn. 
And that yeah, made a absolutely. huge difference. No, I, um, I really think the primary is still what you want to go for because uh, even in our game, Rob, it got out of hand for you early because I got under three objectives quickly and you could never recover. Oh, yeah. Well, and you you alpha struck me hard. Well, that too. <laughs> yeah. Wait, no, and that that's the thing. It's like at a thousand points, at a thousand points on a smaller table, if somebody can do a solid push and, you know, like when you were bringing a jet bike, you know, you, know, you were bring what you would normally bring, you know, a jet, bri- a jet bike elder army with a lot of, you know, fast moving stuff. It's like it almost seems like overkill. But the fact that you can basically be wherever you want on the table is very good and you can bring firepower along with it. Yeah, the jet bikes need to learn how to hit. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think... There were like if there were things that I would have done differently had I been, and I, we talked about this afterwards on after on the first game was, uh, you probably should have gone second, make me come to you because that would have blunted my assault capability somewhat. <clears throat> and then yeah, as far as list building, I probably could have foregone putting rhinos there and replace. I think we talked about ways to replace them with like a. Uh, like figure in the points for a defiler or a plague burst crawler or, yeah. you know, something like that. Or even just having like a n- more bodies, like just another unit of plague Marines, because I effectively had three units. I mean, and that's, and that's playing death guard because you, you wind up having like the two plague Marine units and then like a unit of pox walkers. That's really kind of it. So, uh, yeah, it it was hard to hold objectives. It was hard to play that specific mission with the limited mobility. But and, and like I said, sisters were designed for that, so their points didn't change too much. So they were able to bring more of a variety of units to the t- to the table. And uh, you know, I said I, I had a fun game. The game game was fun. The game was entertaining. The final score was out of hand. You know, it got a little bit away from me. Like it didn't feel like it was swinging away from me until about the fourth turn. We were mm-hmm. pretty even for the first two to three turns, and then it oh, yeah. kind of you know then it kind of got away at the end. So the mission designs were good. Mission designs put you into a position where you have to make tactical choices. Where do I put the steep strike unit? When do I allocate the resources to have somebody take an action? You know, those are all important things because. And, and that's something that just you'll get with uh, with play experience. But the people who are going to win a lot of games in eighth and ninth edition and win tournaments are the people who will be able to figure out that action economy and when to spend actions, when to bring in units to do things, how to hold objectives. The people who figure that out and can kind of master that are going to do well in this edition. Yeah, absolutely, and. And again, that let's consider that this was limited to a thousand points. Um, a two thousand point game with these same factions would have been very different because my assault capability would have I would have had to cross much more of the table. You would have had more firepower to bring to bear, which would have I think you would have been able to better blunt what I was doing, yep. which would have given you you know, I think in the end would have given you the edge, you know, when it becomes a battle of attrition, death guard's going to win that fight. It would have been a much different fight at 2000 points, which is good. Like I, I like that. I like that they've designed the game to work at multiple point levels Mm -hmm. um, and play differently. And they have different missions at those different point levels. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I I will definitely agree that even in my game with Rob, had it been 2000 points, 
it would have played a lot differently because I could not have alpha struck as well as I did because I would have actually had to do get maneuvering to get my guys close enough. And you would have had at least one turn to kind of whittle me down before I got there. And that might have that who knows that turn might have made a difference. It you know, might, yeah. So so getting to the second game, I, you know, I rearranged the table a little bit. Um, same basic terrain, but just or, organized a bit differently. And then um, so, Dennis, you brought uh, a thousand points of not same hand, but a custom craft world. Yeah, my own craft world, because I've always wanted to do my own. I was going to have Harlequins tied to them, but you can't have Harlequins really tied in now because you have to be an ally. That's how old the, the idea for this craft world was. And and I always liked jet bikes. Cause, so that was one of my things was having all of my units have with fly have two extra inches of advance. That doesn't make that much of a difference, but it feels good. Uh, and then the other one was I hated the range of all of my guns. So we had all the shuriken weapons have four inches of extra range, which on a small board made a huge difference on a bigger board. It would be nice, but on the small board, it made a huge difference. And it was kind of nice doing my own craft world because as we mentioned earlier, that's a great way to add your own flavor to something. And then on my side, I had a thousand points of Tau. Um, I used shadow sun because I have the new shadow sun model and I wanted to use her. And I kind of built it the way I generally would use a shadow sun for force where I have a ghost keel and a unit of stealth suits I had a unit of two broadsides for some more heavy firepower, and then uh, three units of five fire warriors, a unit of pathfinders, um, a cadre fireblade to fill up my second HQ slot, and then a unit of ten crute because I wanted to actually play around with uh, putting crute in reserves and outflanking them or having them come in as a second wave the way they used to back in the day. Rob, I will admit when I saw your list, I was a little scared because I'm like, wow, you have so many people that can hit objectives because I only had one troop, which was my Dire Avengers, one squad of jet bikes, and then one squad of Shining Spears, one squad of Banshees, and then a a Fire Prism, and then my HQs were my Farseer and a Warlock squad. And I was like, I might have maneuverability, but you had more bodies. Mm Mm-hmm. And And then, and I knew, you know, I would need to have troops for objectives. Unfortunately, they didn't last very long <laughs> uh, because um, you got first turn yep. and you chose to take it. And that was absolutely the right play. And uh, yeah, you dominated that game. Yeah, well, because the Dire Avengers moved up to control the center, one of the center points. And between them and getting a jet bike squad in pretty much some of your um, Fire Warriors faces... I either took out a squad or I got them really low. I don't remember which. Mm-hmm. I think they were down. Like, I think one squad, one squad was wiped out for sure. And then I think the others were severely cut down. And that, that was just mostly because of mobility. And then thanks to your infiltrators, I was able to get the Banshees and, and the Shining Spears into close combat. And that kind of crippled the three squads that they hit too. Cause the ghost keel never, I mean, it got away, but it was so when you and I was actually able to use it because you you did the uh, charge and then fall back. Yeah, because I wanted to be able to because Shining Spears are best if you can charge with them. So, yeah, I gave you that one. It, But you had crippled it so badly that it, it was basically useless at that point. Yeah, that that was also one of the reasons why I wasn't afraid to back off from it. And uh, yeah, the Banshees cut 
What you 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 did not wipe out the stealth team, but you no. nearly did. I think I think I wiped out the other squad that was close to them. And the stealth team had just one guy left. Yeah, so no, I mean, it was did their job mostly. Yeah, and also the ex the exarch powers, the extra exarch powers you took made a huge difference. I don't know. They made a huge. They they made probably made a difference because for the banshees, I I spent a CP to let them also have the five up in vone in uh, not five up in five up feel no pain in close combat, and then the other one for the shining spheres was spending the point to actually give them the withdraw ability, so they could. Which that one never that those like the dire avengers nothing really interacted with them other than to be shot at by them. So. Yeah, the Dire Avengers didn't matter, but the Shining Spheres, I used that one, and the, and the Banshees definitely used that one when we were in combat. And the and then you also managed to keep uh, Fortune up on the Banshees almost every turn. Yes. And that ma- that's what made a huge difference, because they were extremely resilient. I was also rolling really well. You were, you were, <laughs> but... I mean, it was like with what firepower I had left after that first turn set of assaults and shooting, I couldn't do anything to them. Like, I I just like I would pick off. I don't think I ever killed more than what, two a turn? Yep. Two was the max we got gone in a turn. And that's with like broadsides firing at them. It was units, right? Two units per no, turn. No, no, two models. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, my my. And it wasn't like some of my, some turns, my shooting was bad. Some turns my shooting was fine, but his saving was really solid. So, you know, it was a combination of factors, but also even though Tau have like, are the one army right now that can just overwatch whenever his Banshees are the solid counter to that because I, I don't get to. And so, yeah, he was able to basically like, oh yeah, I'll just charge into the, uh, charge into the broadsides they can't shoot and uh, i'll charge into the broadsides and shadow sun and the broadsides can shift away but they won't be able to fire this turn and neither will shadow sun so yeah it's like the the change to fly no longer being able to fall back and shoot did actually have a a significant impact on the game and the scoring again with him able to get onto all the objectives very quickly I and like you well, and you had a fire prism parked on one objective. Yeah, and just parked on the one in my my deployment zone. Yeah, and you never you never had to move. No. And so with that, and then the dire avengers on the second one, so there's ten points a turn, and it was very easy for him. For, you know, it was very easy for you to push me off oh. of a third objective. And so, I mean, that was fifteen points every turn. That you were just clean because you did all that. Like you did that big push turn one when primary isn't scored. Trying to clean up. Yeah. So I scored 12 points that game and 10 of those were because I had a fully painted army. Yeah. And I this, I want to take this opportunity to file one minor grievance with our game. I'm not going to say who, but somebody had one unpainted model in both armies. So neither of us got the 10 points. Was it me? Alan, I also no. said earlier that I didn't bring my own army, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, yeah, we, I. <laughs> you cheated me out of 10 points, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I also cheated me out of 10 points in that game as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, and then that one came down to um, when I was building the list, because I didn't have rhinos, I had a few more points for the sisters. So I put a, I normally run eight Repentia because I put like, 
a superior and then either a canonist or a missionary in that rhino. And I didn't need to do that, so I had a ninth repentia in each squad, but I only have enough painted for two squads of eight. So um, some primed uh, death death cult assassins got to volunteer to be temporary repentia. And I think all, I think both of them died like top of one. So. Oh yeah, they got sh- <laughs> they yeah. So like they they served their purpose as extra fodder. And then I I had a a, a biologus in your army to yeah, just was, do just stupid grenade games. And Which uh, I got he, to do once. I got to did. throw his grenade once. Yep, <laughs> and it was awesome. <laughs> and he was he was also like built and primed, but not painted. So. Uh, other list builds would have had fully painted armies, but yeah, no, I, it was just one of those rides that was kind of funny that you're like, well, I have one model in your army that doesn't, that isn't painted, but I also have t- models in my army. And I'm like, I, I don't care. <laughs> like <laughs> we're playing for fun. It's, if it was really that big a deal, we'd like give each other the points. And like, well, and, and, and uh, when we finished up our game and I'm like, you know what, Dennis, I'm not going to bother. Like this was just a friendly game. I'm not going to bother with the 10 points. He's like, no, 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 you should go ahead and take it. Cause otherwise you have two. <laughs> It looks a lot. 12, 12 somehow looks a lot better than two. It, yeah, because uh, otherwise it was two to eighty-seven. It would have been nine. It would have been twelve to ninety-seven if he had also had a fully painted army. And, uh, our game was uh, eighty to thirty-nine. So yes. Um, also, I do want to. You mentioned it earlier, but the ITC Battles app is fantastic for this. It is very easy to track the games, and the fact that you can like view the results of the game like afterwards mm-hmm. and like it's in the score sheet format. So, and yeah, you know, like you can even track like, this is how many command points uh, we get, you know, like, like here's how many we gained each turn, lost each turn. Uh, here's how the secondary objectives were scored. It makes it very easy to kind of go back and look at like, this is how the game went. Uh, speaking of command points. Yeah. I was going to say something about that. <laughs> yeah. Speaking mm-hmm. of command points. Um, I think ninth edition is just about perfect there. I think the fixed command points by battle size plus gaining one every turn, if you have a battle forged army, which you really should, felt just about right. I mean, we were playing at a thousand points. We started with six in most of our, most of the games. Well, I say most of like, I know I didn't use any pregame in the first game, but I know you did, Kevin, and then in Dennis's yeah. game, we both did. Yeah, and then I, you had to remind me, oh yeah, you should probably use your command points, you're getting them stacked up. So yeah, I started using mine to where the end of the game, I, I think I had one command point left because <laughs> I was like, oh, if I'm going to get one every turn, I might as well spend one every turn too, so. Yeah, I never felt like I didn't have access to the tools I needed, They're like to the tricks that my codex allows me to use. I always felt like I had those available and I also knew that I couldn't burn out completely early. I would, I would have a chance to regain them. So the economy feels really good, but also doesn't feel like I need to build to maximize them. Yeah. Cause like, in like we were both playing battalions in game one, game two, you were playing a patrol, Dennis. Yep. Which would have been suicide in a play, you know in last edition because you'd have like no points whatsoever, right? But it, it panned out really well because I, I like focusing on jet bikes. So in a patrol, I only needed one um, troop, and you know your warlord is in the patrol, so you get those those two CP refunded, which you wouldn't do if you were in like of 
like an outrider detachment. Right. So, I mean, for you, a patrol worked out just fine. So not having them tied to your army build other than like it will cost you to do certain things made it feel like, yeah, we had more freedom to build the kind of army we wanted to, which I think is is a really good thing. And again, I never felt like I didn't have the means to do the things I wanted to do. Like you, but there were still strategic decisions to be made because like, I have a, like, do I want to like, uh, in the game against death guard, I did end up saving enough command points to do a three point strat on like turn four. So I could mm-hmm. double fight, um, with my repentia against your, uh, box walkers. Yeah, and that, and that finished them off. So like, yeah, like it, uh, death guard has always felt similar to like custodes as a guard, as an army that needed a battery to be able to generate enough CP to function. So you always had, a lot of really cool stratagems, but you never used them. You always ended up using the same two or three because those were the good ones and you were very, very strapped for points. Having Always having CP regenerate and having a fixed number allowed me to use, or at least kept open the option to use some of these other stratagems later in the game. Like I, I think I did most of my damage to your warlord because... Um, I use the Harbinger strat that when a unit dies, they do D3 mortal wounds to the unit that killed them. Yeah. I think I took like four. I, I took her down to one wound because if I had rolled a three instead of a two, I would have killed her. And, and yep. I would have at least felt better about the moral victory. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the so fact like, that you had the points to use that. Absolutely. Yeah. And in, you know, in eighth edition, I wouldn't have had the points there to use that with that army. So. I, I like that. I, I think the command points work out really well. Also, I felt, and I, I kind of hinted at this earlier, I felt terrain, even though, like, technically on the table, we only had, like, two things that were big enough to be ruins. And mm-hmm. honestly, on this table size, it would have, like, we could have fit in maybe a third, but I don't think we needed to. But so, there were a lot of uh, ruined wall sections otherwise. Because, again, I'm just using the terrain out of the kill team box and then, like, uh, one more battle zone or one more kill zone. But, like, in the game against Dennis, like, that – him having to shoot through that because it was considered uh, dense cover um, made him at minus one to hit my broadsides, which I had parked in, like, a building made out of ruined walls, which wasn't tall enough Mm -hmm. to be ruins, so not obscuring, but – the wall sections, because the shot had to go through them, did make it dense cover and gave me the minus one to be hit, which helped keep them alive longer. Just a little bit. A li- oh, I mean, you weren't able, like, you missed just enough shot. Like, it made you miss just enough shots that you weren't able to, like, take them out, like, turn one or two. That is true. That is true. Because they were one of my biggest threats early on, because had you been able to, like, kill the fire prism early... Which you tried. Mm-hmm. That would have been a bad day for me. Yep. <laughs> and then uh, in our in the first game, uh, we also got to, like, you were able to charge a unit of sisters that I had pulled back behind a ruined wall, Kevin. But because they count as defense line, you can just be up at the wall and fight them. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that created some interesting, that created some interesting tactics. So, like, I was able to get through there and still get to them. Whereas, like, before, they would have pretty much been 
unassaultable. But that also gave them, I think that, that, that gave them, I guess we were playing it as, as dense cover. So that gave them a minus one when I shot at them before I assaulted. Yeah. Uh, Cause I was, I was trying to remember, cause I remember there was some other interaction with that, but like, yeah, like it, the game feels a lot different when cover the cover rules matter. And like the cover rules just didn't matter in eighth edition. And you can tell that just from the few pieces we had on the table to interact with that it's much better in the current edition. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I feel like now granted we have not played on a larger table with more units. And so like, do not take this as the definitive word of like, this all works perfectly, but it works very well at this point level for sure, which is something that I don't think eighth edition did. I don't think eighth edition scaled down well. Yes. Yeah, it definitely did not. Yeah. It was, you could tell by mission structure and the way they wanted armies constructed, like playing at a thousand points did seem uh, it, it didn't seem like it it worked uh the game just didn't handle it well it wasn't it you could tell it was built around that 2000 point level it was meant to be played at 2000 points this edition really does feel that it plays it, it is meant to be played at multiple points levels and i think the the bu- building missions specifically at certain point levels does help fix that, you know, one size fits all problem that old previous editions had. And I do think that we tend to look at a lot of armies right now purely from that. Well, how do they perform at the 2000 point level? Cause that's how we're used to playing after three years of eighth edition and seventh edition for that matter, you know, playing before that. I'm, I'm curious to see what like, a th- you know, we talked about like, you know, having events do, uh, you know, like a one day thousand point GT, I'd be curious to see how different the meta would be. Like are armies like orcs going to do better at that? Are, you know, oh, I don't want Eldar. Like, I mean, we've already talked about like, you know, and I've seen people talk about how like El- they don't think Eldar is going to do great in this edition because, you know, at 2000 points, but at 1000 points, this particular Eldar list just tore up the field. <laughs> I think other Eldar lists would really do well at a thousand points too, because even if you think of a Wraith list, it's a smaller board. They can get to the other side quickly. Mm-hmm. And again, that 12 inch bubble of range is not nearly as big a problem. Right. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think this might be the thousand point edition for Eldar. And that unfortunately is where our recording bots Stopped. Uh, we were in the middle of our Discord call, and our uh, record multi-track recording bot crashed at that moment. So, unfortunately, that's the end of our discussion on uh, our thousand-point games of Ninth Edition. I think we pretty much covered it uh, from what we liked about it and uh, how we thought the meta would be different for thousand-point versus two thousand-point. Uh, we will try to get um, games in later, although. With uh, Kevin back in Arizona, Dennis getting ready to move to Texas, and uh, Richard's schedule being kind of up in the air. I'll see what kind of games I can get in in the local area if they can be done safely. But uh, anyway, I apologize for the conversation being cut a little bit short. Also, sorry that we don't have a morale phase or hobby progress. I mean, I can say that I've been working on painting a pair of Fabius Biles and uh, finishing up a, a rescue night 
project that I started a couple of years ago. But again, that doesn't get what everybody's doing. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show here. Again, uh, thank you for your support. I With Dennis moving in the next week or so, I don't know what our recording schedule will look like. If nothing else, maybe Kevin and I can record uh, something short and sweet. But we'll figure out what we can do. Uh, but until then, from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And through the magic of editing, I can bring you the outro. Good night, good gaming, and play safe, everybody. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.